Good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for inviting me to speak with you today. And more importantly, thank you for all that you do to support UVA law. Uh, as you've heard, I've been here just three years now, and this has just been a tremendous institution and a fabulous place to work. And I'm just delighted to be here and uh, to share my work with you today. Uh, and uh, here's you know, more of the shameless plug of the, the book that I'm writing with Larry Alexander. Uh, I wanted to talk to you today about the kind of puzzle that made me want to be a criminal law theorist in the first place. Uh, so as background, uh, Larry and I have already uh, written a book on criminal law theory. And we argued about how the criminal law should be structured uh, if you take a retributivist position for the criminal law. And by retributivist, I mean that I think it's intrinsically good for people to get what they deserve. Uh, I think it's bad when we punish the innocent, but good when we punish the guilty. Uh, if you want to figure out if you share my retributive intuitions, uh, one way to do that is with the following thought experiment, uh, which is uh, you imagine that Hitler is on an island, and uh, he cannot leave the island. No one knows he's on the island. You have no concerns about deterrence, rehabilitation, what anyone will ever think about this. And you just have the power to either make it sunny or rainy on Hitler's island. And my view is that there should be torrential downpour on Hitler's island. And that's because I think it's intrinsically good for people to get what they deserve. Uh, Hitler deserves a lot of suffering, and it would be intrinsically good for it to rain on him. So in uh, writing this book uh, that we previously uh, finished, we, t we talked about a lot of different ways to restructure the criminal law and think about the criminal law. So we wanted to get rid of negligence and focus on recklessness. We argued that attempts should be punished the same as completed crimes. We argued for certain constructions of how the act requirement should work and how it would square with double jeopardy. Uh, we even tried as theorists to talk about the implications for the real world. Uh, and so you could ask, after we've reconfigured the entirety of the criminal law, sort of what is left? Left. Uh, but it turns out another whole book is left, uh, and that's because there are a lot of questions about what the criminal law presupposes uh, and also a ton of puzzles sort of at the periphery of the criminal law. So the chapter I'm working on right now is the question about personal identity at one time and over time, right? And we might think it's pretty important that if you're going to punish someone for committing a crime, you want the person who committed the offense to actually be the person you're ultimately going to put in jail. So you can start with some sort of fun theoretical questions that philosophers like to play with, right? So, you know, when Scotty beams you, you know, up Captain Kirk, right? Is that the same Captain Kirk, or did Captain Kirk die? And then there's another Captain Kirk that got beamed up. And what happens if actually there's a memory card in the transporter? So we get two Captain Kirks back on the Enterprise. And then what happens if Captain Kirk had committed a crime before we got two of them? Do we put both of them in jail, the first one, the second one? How could we possibly figure any of these things out? So. Part of the job of a criminal law theorist is, in fact, to struggle with some of these incre incredibly highly philosophical questions. But there's also some grounded questions that we have to ask, right? So sure, most movies sort of probably overstate what happens with amnesia. But you could ask the question, what happens if someone has completely forgotten committing the crime, has changed their personality? Should they still be punished? Uh, 
What happens if the person has a religious conversion and totally changes character and doesn't sort of recognize herself as the person who committed the crime? What happens if just a lot of time goes by? So when uh, Kathy Salia was a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, that's the crew that kidnapped Patty Hearst, uh, she committed a bunch of crimes and was ultimately indicted for conspiracy to murder police officers with pipe bombs. That was in 1976. She then goes underground and is not captured until 1999, when she's now a you know, cookie-baking mom of three who participates in community theater. Uh, and so one question we might have is, does she still deserve the same amount of punishment? So putting aside questions about rehabilitation, putting aside questions about not wanting to encourage people to get away with something by going underground, there's still the question, is she the person? Is Sarah Jane Olson still enough like Kathy that she deserves punishment for the crime that she committed? And so the first half of the chapter actually is dealing with these sorts of questions about personal identity over time. And I'll return to one of these puzzles uh, towards the end of the talk. But for now, I wanted to talk about uh, what once was called multiple personality disorder, but is now called dissociative identity disorder, and, uh, and the questions about what this raises for criminal responsibility. I should say, I know the movie Split is out. I might have been a prosecutor, I might teach criminal law, but I super hate scary movies and I haven't seen it. Uh, so I can't answer any questions about uh, that movie. Um, what I'm going to do uh, for my short time is to discuss a bit about the empirical assumptions uh, of dissociative identity disorder, uh, and then work through three different potential approaches that the criminal law might have uh, and the, their implications if we really take seriously a retributive it retributivist position on punishment. And then I want to talk lastly about the question of integration, uh, which is a treatment where you actually try and take these different identities and put them back together, and what the criminal law might actually have to say uh, about that. Uh, so first, let's talk about the empirics. So here's a PowerPoint that violates all PowerPoint rules. It has way too many words per slide. The good news is I don't actually intend for you to read any of them. Uh, this is the DSM-5 uh, criteria for dissociative identity disorder. And among the things that you see within it are that we're looking at people who have uh, two or more distinct personality uh, uh, states. There's this discontinuity between their self and their agency. There, there's the concern that the host in particular is suffering gaps in the ability to recall everyday events. Uh, and these are symptoms that aren't attributable to something like substance abuse, right? It's not that you can't remember what you did because you took LSD. It's instead that there's something going on psychologically uh, that is causing this person to sort of fracture in terms of how they approach the world. So yes, there are many people who are skeptical of whether this is a thing, uh, but it is in fact recognized in the DSM. It's been reported in peer-reviewed journals in 26 countries over three decades. Uh, and there are some amazingly surprising findings. So they test these different personalities and find out things like they have different vision, they have different allergies, they have different heart rates and blood pressure, right? So there is at least some sort of scientific finding going on that in fact people with dissociative identity disorder have these different personalities that are displaying sort of different people. 
And so I am not a psychiatrist. I don't even play one on TV. But the beauty of being a criminal law theorist is I get to say, assuming these facts are true, assuming that this is right, and there really is this diagnosis and it is valid, how should criminal law, how should moral theory approach people who suffer with, from dissociative identity disorder? And among the other facts that I am sort of taking to be true, right? these are people who have suffered some sort of significant significant trauma in childhood. That's what's causing them to sort of learn to cope by having some alter that handles bad situations uh, when the host can't handle it. The host, in fact, experiences this as lost time. The host wakes up and has no idea how she got where she is or why she owns what she does. The host and the alter tend to have different personalities and goals. And there's also asymmetric access and control between the host and the alters. So the host doesn't know the alters exist, but quite frequently the alters will know that the host exists. Sometimes the alters can control when they appear. Sometimes they actually have access to the host's memories, even though the host doesn't have access to the alters' experiences. So these cases do, believe it or not, come up in criminal law. Uh, in State versus Grimsley, uh, Robin claimed that she was not guilty of the DUI, that in fact it was her alter Jennifer that committed the offense. Uh, in Denny Schaffer, uh, Gidget, the host, claimed that in fact it was her alter Rena and maybe the additional alter Bridget that had kidnapped a baby that they were then trying to pass off as their own, uh, trying to convince the boyfriend that it was in fact uh, his child. And so in, ask, in confronting these cases where the host says, I didn't do it, the alter did, uh, we have to start with the question, how many people do we have in this body, right? And there are going to be theorists that have different answers to that. So some people think that if the host and the altar have different personalities, we can have two or more people in one body. Some person thinks we have, some people think we have one mentally ill person in the body. Uh, and still others say that we have zero people in the body. I'm actually in the zero camp. I'll defend that soon. Um, <laughs> so, uh, when we're looking at taking the first approach of multiple people in a body, I think there are good arguments and bad arguments for why you wind up with there are multiple people in this one body. Here's the bad argument first. There are some people that take the criteria for personhood and they run it for each, each altar and host, right? So they say something like, does this person have beliefs? desires, intentions, plans, and sort of a personality that extends over time. And the answer they get is, yes, both Jennifer and Robin meet that test. The problem is the test was never designed as a criterion for how many people you had. It was only designed as a test for whether you had a person to begin with. Right, so the test was designed to figure out why I am, not a, I am a person and a tree is not a person. Trees don't have intentions, plans, and personalities and plan. And so we know the tree is not a person, but I am. But it can't be the right test for how many people you have. Because you can run that test with Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens, and you get, guess what, they're both people, but they're still just one person. So the people who are trying to approach this question through a test for personhood are winding up with the answer that they have more than one person, but it, many theorists have complained it's just the wrong test. 
I think the reason why uh, some theorists, though, are tempted to see this as more than one person is because they're using the same sort of thinking that they use for the Kathy, uh, Celia, Sarah, Jane Olson question, which is, what makes me the same person over time? And many theorists think that what matters is not your body, but your psychology. So if you take my brain and you put it in Micah Schwartzman's body and you put Micah's brain and you put it in my body and we ask, which person is Kim, we're all going to decide the person sitting over there has suddenly become Kim, right? That it's actually my psychology, my memories, my beliefs, my desires that make me who I am and not, in fact, my body. If you take that kind of psychological approach to personal identity, you wind up thinking that when there are two different personalities in a body, you've got two different people. So the Grimsley court actually seemed quite sympathetic to saying, sure, Jennifer's the altar. Jennifer can be her own locus of responsibility. And guess what? Jennifer wasn't unconscious or involuntary. So go to jail, go directly to jail, do not collect $200. Uh, the problem then is that if you've got two people in one body, if you've got Jennifer and Robin in there, and Robin didn't do it and Jennifer did, then why in fact would it be fair to put Robin in jail, right? So our first answer I think is, gosh, this would be really hard, right? How could we possibly sort this out if we credited that more than one person could be in a body? I mean, voter fraud, how could we possibly cope with that? Uh, separate from that, inheritance, marriage, driver's licenses, all sorts of things. If we had more than one person in a body, how could we possibly manage it? But just because it's too hard doesn't mean the law doesn't have to deal with it, right? So there are times the law might have to. Meet the Hensel twins. There, these, this is not uh, photoshopped. The Hensel twins are actually in their 20s. Uh, they've gone to college. Uh, they... Uh, to go back to this, right, they have two separate brains, their spines uh, meet uh, towards the bottom of their body, uh, two hearts, three lungs, two stomachs. Uh, the person on the right com uh, controls the right arm and the right leg, and the person on the left controls the left arm and the left leg. So let's now imagine what happens, right, when A decides to stab a waiter while B is looking the opposite way. B, I take it, is going to claim it would be incredibly unfair to put me in jail. I am not the person who committed this offense. A committed the offense. You shouldn't punish me. I think the government's best response could possibly be, well, we're not really punishing you. It's just an incredibly foreseeable side effect, right? Just as, in fact, when we put wife in jail, husband suffers, kids suffer, you are just the unfortunate side effect, but we're not intending to punish you. But I think in this case, we would think that's probably an implausible response, right? We are going to take your body and put it in jail. We are going to subject you to prison food and hard treatment. We are ultimately going to stigmatize you in a way that is inseparable uh, from your conjoined twin. Uh, and so I would think that A and B have a very, that A has a very strong claim, I'm sorry, 
It's B who didn't do it. Whoever didn't do it has a very strong claim that she shouldn't go to jail because the other person did. Uh, and then by analogy, Robin should have an incredibly strong claim that she should not be placed in jail just because uh, Jennifer did it, right? So this creates a problem for the criminal law, which is it is really uh, intrinsically bad to punish people who don't deserve punishment. It's good to punish people who do, but we generally think it's worse to punish the undeserving uh, than it is good to punish the deserving, right? That's why we wind up with proof beyond a reasonable doubt weighted so f so heavily in favor of not punishing uh, guilty people because we're afraid we might punish the innocent. So retributivists should have significant problems that if we have more than one person in this body, we have a real problem with punishing uh, the body that hosts more than one person. Of course, we can happily, at least uh, for multiple personality disorder, get out of this problem if we don't actually have more than one person in the body. Uh, so the second approach would be to say, we just have one mentally ill person here. And Robin just lacks control over what Jennifer does. And that looks a lot more like a sleepwalking case. So famously, Mrs. Cogden in the 1950s had a dream that she was uh, fighting Korean soldiers. What she really was doing was going out to a shed, getting an ax, bringing it back into the house, and uh, fatally killing her daughter. Uh, when we asked the question, should we punish Mrs. Cogden, we would say, no. Right? Again, she might be dangerous, we might want to civilly confine her, we might have other uh, recourses, but in terms of asking does she deserve punishment, she lacks the reflective self-awareness, the control over what her body was doing in a way that makes her morally responsible for what she did. And so the criminal law would typically treat this as no act, Right, that there was actually this sleepwalking, reflect, uh, reflexive state should just not count as the kind of awareness uh, where we should, in fact, uh, punish someone. Right, so I am sympathetic to the no person view. So what do I mean by that? Um, I mean that this person lacks status responsibility. In the same way that we don't think that a three-year-old might be held to be morally accountable, a, a person with dissociative identity disorder may be the sort of person where the whole is less than the sum of the parts. Right? So every individual personality might appear rational, but when you combine them, you actually just have an incredibly irrational person who does not, in fact, project herself over time and space. She can't plan because part of her plans one thing and part of her plans something else. To give you an analogy to the kind of case where we might think the person lacks status responsibility, uh, consider the movie Memento uh, and Amnesia. Um, now, this actually not only is a great movie if you haven't seen it, but uh, psychiatrists actually say that it's a fairly accurate depiction of uh, what somebody who is suffering uh, this sort of brain damage uh, would be like. So if you haven't seen the movie, I'll try not to spoil it for you. Uh, this is a person who has some past recollection of what happened in his past, but can't, he has sort of a working operative memory that he then can't convert to long-term memory. So after about five minutes, he simply restarts. And so he can't remember the things that happened or the people that he has met over time uh, after uh, the, the brain trauma. 
So what do we do with someone like this? So in the movie, uh, he's a pretty scary, dangerous guy. I'm certainly not saying we wouldn't necessarily want to civilly confine him or do something to make sure he doesn't hurt people. Uh, but if we ask the question, is he a morally blameworthy agent, there's no agency here. There's no person who actually plans something and then can achieve the very things he plans. Right? He can't plan something and actually realize it 15 minutes later. And I think that when we think about dissociative identity disorder, we might think the very same sort of thing, that we don't have one planning agent that can be held morally responsible uh, for her actions. So the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, was the question of how criminal law might think about uh, integration, which is, and the empirics on this are a little tough to get a handle on, but it's some, the idea is basically giving the one person access to all of their altars and bringing everybody sort of back together as a cohesive whole. This presents the least amount of problems for the one person and zero uh, person views, right? So the zero person view is the hope that post-integration we actually have somebody who can be a moral agent who can be held accountable going forward. Uh, and if it's the one mentally ill person, similarly the hope is Right, that then once they have integrated, they can then be held uh, criminally responsible uh, for future acts. In neither case would the person be held accountable for the act that they committed while suffering from the disorder, because just like a three-year-old can't be held, you can't be held responsible for what your three-year-old self did, or you shouldn't be held responsible for what you did while sleepwalking, we wouldn't under the zero or one person views want to hold the person accountable post-integration. But the multiple person view actually creates a couple sort of, you know, puzzles that somebody like me really enjoys. First puzzle, is it murder? So if in fact you combine personalities, are you killing people? Right? And if you think you're not killing people, maybe it means you don't actually think that you have multiple people in the body to begin with. Um, so uh, Morton Prince uh, analyzed Christine Beauchamp back in the 1800s, and uh, there was her personalities were such that personality one and personality three, upon further digging, there was a personality four, and four had full access to one and three, but one and three didn't know four existed. So one and three didn't like the idea of integration. They basically saw that as dying. And no amount of telling them, well, look, four has all of your beliefs, memories, and desires and has had full access to everything that you are, so you won't die, right? It would not console them, right? And I think you can imagine that if you were told somebody else had everything you had and it would be okay if you disappeared, there'd be no part of you that thought that that was okay, right? And so one question that arises, in fact, with integration is if you really thought that all of these personalities were people, they would have claims not to be integrated, that in fact it would be murder and even at best assisted suicide. The other sort of neat question that arises is, let's say that all the personalities consent. So you combine A and B and you get C. Now can we punish C? C sees herself as uh, part of B, right? As the person who committed the crime. And that's actually quite similar to how Sarah Jane Olson must think about good old Kathy from 23 years ago, right? 
In some ways, I'm in the same, and in some ways, I've changed, and this combination of who I am still might be blameworthy. So if we actually think that there's more than one person, and then we fuse them together, that new person might still carry those blameworthy, desert-bearing traits that would make the person then criminally liable. Uh, so if we have more than one person, perhaps criminal law's answer, at least with dissociative identity disorder, is to integrate the person, and then the person, in fact, would be subject uh, to punishment. Uh, so I very much welcome your comments and questions on this. I think that ultimately what we see is that we have empirical questions about the disorder that are intersecting with our normative uh, questions about what it takes to make someone a person. And although fortunately for all of us, the vast majority of the time, we don't need to ask or answer these sorts of questions, our punishment practices presuppose that we have one identity at and over time. Thank you.